just feel exhausted. And not just the exhausted that apparently you get when you're approaching your 30s and you're scrambling to find time to just text your friends back or sit down to eat a meal. <laughs> I'm talking about the mental and emotional exhaustion of living under a president who is mentally unstable. <laughs> Take this past weekend for an example. Trump sent about 25 tweets between Saturday morning and Sunday night. Uh, he called for the firing of black professional athletes for exercising their First Amendment rights. He attacked Republicans who've committed to voting no on the latest resurrection of repeal and replace. He continued to escalate nuclear tensions between us and North Korea. He tweeted that Iran launched a missile that is, quote, capable of reaching Israel, uh, which later turned out to be absolutely false. 25 tweets. And he couldn't be bothered to, say, tweet about Puerto Rico, where Hurricane Maria has left the entire island without power and 60% of the population without safe drinking water, where people are begging for help for him to do something. No, he couldn't be bothered with that. <laughs> and that's just in one weekend. <laughs> it is crazy to imagine that six weeks ago was the Charlottesville protest. It's hard to even remember what Trump was tweeting about last weekend that was so outrageous. Not to mention that we just grazed past the fact that a sitting president used the phrase son of a bitch in a speech and no one blinked an eye. I don't know about you, but I am so tired of seeing my minority and marginalized friends used as bargaining chips in this sham of a presidency. If you care so much about the American flag and the troops who serve under it, where were you when Trump decided that trans military members don't deserve to be honored? If you care so much about the rule of law, why aren't you up in arms about black people being unjustly and wrongfully and disproportionately murdered by police officers for reaching for their wallet or daring to hold a toy gun in a park? <laughs> police officers who never face any repercussions for the innocent lives that they have taken. But when you ask these questions, it feels like you're pounding your fist against a brick wall. A wall that gets thicker with every vicious tweet, with every platitude that Trump yells out at a rally or a campaign speech. And maybe that's where the exhaustion comes from. But it's not always that way. Sometimes there are stories that pierce the wall and start tearing it down brick by brick. My guest today tells one of those stories. His name is Brett Trapp, and he wrote a blog called Blue Baby's Pink, where he tells his story of being gay and Christian in the South. I hope after the pod, you'll go check it out and uh, tell me what you think. Enjoy. series called Blue Baby's Pink. Uh, it was deemed the Netflix of blogs. It was read by tens of thousands of people. And then you turned it into a podcast, which, you know, was like one of the most popular podcasts 
best of all time, I think is what you said. Um, <laughs> and I read it from the beginning and I was really moved by the way you told your story of what it was like to uh, be gay uh, in the South and as a pastor's kid. And you did this like heart-wrenching, amazingly job, amazing job of explaining the emotions that are around that. Um, so I guess I was just wondering what, does, what made you decide to share that on the internet where people are really, really mean? <laughs> Yeah. So I grew up, I was the son of a Southern Baptist pastor in Alabama, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, began to sense that I was different, you know, maybe middle school, early high school, but really just did not feel comfortable at all, you know, with that and really wanted it to change, wanted it to go away, tried to pray it away, tried to become straight, did the therapy thing eventually. And so just retreated deep into the closet, you know, like, like a million other, uh, you know, mm -hmm. gay boys before me and uh, just lived that life through high school, college, into career, late into my 20s, just did not, uh, you know, did not even want to acknowledge that it was there and, and did not find any way that I could reconcile my faith and, um, and the sexuality piece. And so so again, just kind of shunned it and ran from it and tried my best to ignore it. But as life went on, life got harder and kind of that loneliness increased, that shame increased, and it became really hard. And so, you know, around 2010, when I was around 30, I began to come out to a few close friends and family. And, uh, and but then this whole time, sort of late in my 20s and 30s, I had this sense of, Brett, you know, one day you need to share this. You need to put this out there in some capacity. At that time, I had no idea. And so I'd really begun to kind of journal thoughts around this topic in 2007. So about a decade ago, I began to just write down every single thought I had around this topic, you know, all the emotions and the stories and the things I would hear. And so over time, that note kind of turned into a 25,000 word, just blob of content. You know, uh, I kept it in Evernote in my phone. And so... So yeah, to answer your question, um, really just felt compelled to to try to put this into some kind of coherent story because I had been watching, as many of us have for years, the culture wars around the issue of homosexuality, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in a, in a Christian evangelical context, and, and just hated it. I hated the fighting, the shouting, the yelling. No one was listening. No one had any essence of humility about themselves. Everyone was just trying to prove a point. And so I'm kind of watching this closeted really just in horror, just like, you know, I don't ever want to be a part of that. But at the same time, I felt compelled to tell my story in some way for those who wanted to listen. And so, so yeah, I launched a blog called Blue Babies Pink and, and basically kind of, you know, in one day came out on the internet and, and then told people, Hey, yes, it's true. I'm gay. By the way, I'm going to be writing my story every day for 44 days. And if you would like to read along, you're more than welcome. And I really just thought, you know, friends from back home or some friends would, would read it and maybe hopefully understand. But I really did it to, to try to just bring an increased level of understanding and empathy for gay people. And, and granted, my story is just my story. I, I don't speak for other folks and other people have had much different stories, much harder stories. But you know what? It is my story. And I think everybody's story is valid. And I think everybody has the right to at least share it. You know, people may not listen. And, and I, I even, I think I made the point early on in the prologue to say, you know, it's more important that, that I'm able to tell my story than even anyone listening. For me, it was a kind of therapy, a kind of healing. And so, so yeah, obviously that came with a ton of fear yeah. because the internet is full of terrible people. It's full of great people and it's full of terrible jerk type people who, who don't want to listen and only want to troll and be critical. And so, you know, I, I had the chance to kind of make peace with that literally for years before launching this product or project. 
I just, you know, in my mind kind of just played out, Brett, what is the worst case scenario? Okay, yeah. you know, people say this, they say that, and and Brett, just be prepared for that. And so I kind of just tried to get myself in a healthy state. Uh, you know, I had a lot of close friends and family around me who I, you know, and I'm kind of a believer in you only kind of need to care about what the what the people think of those who are closest to you, those who actually know you. Yeah. And everybody else, it just doesn't matter. You know, it just yeah. really does not matter. I think we're called to like care about everyone else, but we're not called to necessarily care about what they think of us or yeah. what they say of us. And so that's kind of my mentality. Yeah. So I just, I just, I wanted to put it out there, you know, and just kind of let the cards fall where they may. And I was prepared for, for whatever backlash that I got. Yeah. So going back to something you said just a second ago, you, you mentioned like, it, it's just your story, but do you ever feel like because your story is like a lot of other people's story and because there is this tension between, you know, Christians and the LGBT community in a lot of ways, do you ever feel like people kind of want to make you into a spokesperson for, for gay Christians sometimes? Or do you ever feel the pressure to be a spokesperson just kind of for that yeah. community as a whole? You know, that was definitely an early fear because um, I didn't I didn't want to be a spokesperson. And to be honest, I still don't. You know, I've often said that my sexuality, it's its in the definition of me, but it does not define me. Mm-hmm. And so, and some people don't have that perspective. For some people, their sexuality is a defining thing, and I don't judge, you know, to each their own. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's just one facet of who Brett Trapp is, mm-hmm. uh, among many other sort of sub-identities. You know, the, besides the fact I'm a person of faith, I like college football, I like business and entrepreneurship, I like creativity, you know, so... Yeah. So for me, I just never felt the need to kind of make it the main thing. And so I kind of feared being a spokesperson because I'm like, I just don't want to be the guy who the gay Christian homo guy, you know, like, (laughs) um, and, and again, there are people out there who want to be that and are that. And I love it. I think it's great. I think we need people speaking into these issues. So I just kind of came to a place where I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'll speak up because again, having hid for so long, I do want to speak up. I do want to use the little voice that I have to hopefully spread some increased love and empathy in the world. And maybe even people of faith who who don't have an open mind around this issue, maybe if they listen to my story, that will help them grow in empathy, which I think we all could use that. I need to grow in empathy around people that I don't understand because I can at times be a narrow-minded person. And so, I think so yeah, that was kind of my motivation. Yeah, everyone struggles, especially especially in today's age. I feel like we're always, I mean, and I'm not innocent by any means. Um, we're, with the way politics and just like life in general works now is like we're constantly like feeling this need to like prove ourselves or it's 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 sort of like a, we all have a, a, a dog in this fight now, it seems like, especially with, you know, the president that we have in the administration. And, and it's hard to see these people as people sometimes on the other side of the aisle. Um, whether it's politics or whether it's religion or whatever it is, it's, it's so hard to see other people as people whenever you're just angry at them for what you see that they did to you or, you know, whatever that is like. So I think it's something that everyone struggles with today, even even the most empathetic of people. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's easy to humanize people in your tribe. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think this whole concept of tribalism is kind of just ruling everything now mm-hmm. is – Whatever sense of whatever tribe you're in, you kind of trust and accept whatever those people say at face value. And then instinctually, uh, we don't trust people in other tribes. And again, none of us are immune to it. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a level of, of, of healthy self-awareness 
of understanding that that dynamic is in play for whatever reason. You know, if you're religious, you can say that's a result of sin. If you're irreligious, you can say that's a result of evolution. And we have evolved, you know, to, uh, you know, be very tribalistic people Mm -hmm. because that's how we lived on the plains, you know, millions of years ago as very primitive people. So, you know, but, but I do think social media has amplified that tribalism and in some ways it's, it's increased it, I think, tenfold because we're able to kind of sort ourselves into these tribes very easily. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, we couldn't do that. Yeah. I feel like we're able to sort ourselves into tribes. And we also, the internet creates this wall that I don't think exists in everyday life where you don't have to look this person in the face when you say things to them that you normally wouldn't say to them. (laughs) So it's easier to be like, oh yeah, you're an other and, and, and I'm, I am me and, and this is my tribe, and I understand why they do what they do, what they do but I will, like, you, you're, it's just a refusal to like, kind of see that other person as someone who makes decisions based on their emotions as well. Um, and, and, and it just creates a wall to let people say things in a meaner and harsher and, and less empathetic and forgiving way than I think you normally would in right. person. I think there was a video I that I saw the other day um, where it was, like, a, it was a pro-Trump, uh, rally or something and and these Black Lives Matter people showed up and um, they let them talk on stage and you could kind of see like I saw this yeah. You see this yeah yeah and yeah it was like they you could see the people in the crowd even though there were some that would st- were still shouting and saying kind of hurtful things like there were some that actually like you could see the their reactions changing as this man spoke in a very eloquent way about you know, what Black Lives Matter stood for and what they were protesting for. And it was a really cool example of, like, how doing these things face-to-face and not over the Internet or, you know, whatever way you're doing it that doesn't allow you to, to really, like, meet people in the middle and see where they are, is it's a great example of how, like, that is the way we need to go about this. And it's hard, and, it, and it's hard, you know, to say, like, well, we really need to understand why people in Charlottesville, you know, were protesting the way they did. Like, it's really hard to say, like, well, we need to understand why white supremacists do what they do, you know. But, but at right. the end of the day, like, you don't have to agree with them, and you certainly don't have to respect their opinion, but, but understanding where they, come, where they come from means a lot uh, and, and does a lot. Yeah. I mean, what you said is so true. You said it's hard to, to do that. And that's what I found. I mean, I, I take pride in trying to kind of hold a little bit of a middle space, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of a middle ground, you know, politically, socially. I just, I kind of have some of my views fall on both sides of the political spectrum. And so I try my best to listen to, you know, smart voices on both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. you know, and I do that, you know, primarily through Twitter. I know you're, you're big on Twitter as I am. And, um, but I'm, I'm going to be honest, it is exhausting like scrolling your timeline and reading kind of like right-wing perspectives. And then right after that, it's a left-wing perspective mm-hmm. and it's back and forth. And I'll tell you, it's a hell of a lot easier just to, to just listen to one side. And, and I understand why people do it because mentally it is taxing to try to critically think about all these issues. And well, that's a good point. Well, now that's a good point. I've always believed this, but now I've heard this, you know? And so mm-hmm. it can be exhausting, but I do think there's value in it. And I think we've got to try at least to hear both sides out on all these hot button issues. Yeah. And so now that you've kind of put this story out there, it seems like you're kind of subject to a lot of people's opinions on like maybe the morality of your personal sexual orientation. Now that you've done this and and you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, a while past it, do you ever, are there there ever moments 
you know, when you're reading these messages from people, where whether they're, you know, saying that they'll pray for you in that very kind of backhanded Southern way, or they're, you know, making some comment on whether you're living in sin or not, do you ever wish you could go back to before Blue Babies Pink and just live your life in anonymity? <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I, it's been a year, and I have had. I, I don't think I've had one moment of regret. You know, to be honest, yeah. and that, and I just say that really gratefully because. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think the advantage I have is, you know, in coming as I came out late in life where I was more stable, uh, you know, just economically, financially, socially. And that's not the case for a lot of people. You know, if you come out and you're 16 and you're at the, at the mercy of your parents, that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. You know, if you come out and you're a, a person of color, uh, you know, that I think brings with it another, another layer of complexity that makes your journey harder. So in a lot of ways, my, a lot of ways, my journey has been easier than others. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there definitely have been, been really crappy moments where people have said terrible things and, you know, I don't care who you are. It, it always stings a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, somebody says something or comments something and it, it sticks with you, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I'm kind of in a place now where I'm like, how quickly am I able to move on from those things? Because I just, I'm a believer that there's just no point in sitting in toxicity. There's no point in giving one minute of our lives to, to hateful and negative people, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a thickness of skin that you have to kind of grow. I think there's a, a grittiness that you need to kind of acquire, you know, whenever you're going through something like this that I think is really healthy because I just think so many of us, and I've done this, we waste so much of our lives obsessing over crappy people who don't yeah. matter, you know, yeah. and I don't say that to say that, you know, everybody matters. I get that, you know, but, but people, there are people out there who make it their jobs to be hateful and to be negative. And I'm just like, the quicker we can all learn to move on from that and just live our lives outside of that, you know, the mm -hmm. happier I think we'll all be. Yeah, And you get to choose, you know, who the people are that, that matter and the things that they say matter to you. You can't let all of that kind of like pierce the, the exterior because there's always going to be people out there that are like that. And, and it's something about, you know, <laughs> letting it roll off your shoulders or just pass you by. But the people that the people that matter, I think, uh, are the ones that we should let make an impact on us. And it's, it's right. Not yeah. You do that. But it's how we yeah. do it. <laughs> right, exactly. And I, I draw a distinction. And somebody said that I didn't make up make this up. Someone else taught it. But I, I draw a distinction between critics and trolls. Mm. There's a big difference. And and I will listen to critics, people who are genuinely critical or have questions or inquisitive or, you know, I don't think any of us should be above critique. I'm certainly not. And so, you know, if you, if you are approaching me with a sense of civility and kindness, and I sense that your motive is to actually engage in a intelligent conversation. Yeah. I'm fine. If you want to disagree with me and I'm fine talking to you about that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to trolls, you know, I, I have a zero tolerance policy and I just think it's best to move on. Yeah. That sounds like how most people, including myself, should approach life, but <laughs> easier said than right? done sometimes. <laughs> uh, easier said than done. You are exactly right. Cause, yeah, that's true. I think what's been one of the coolest parts for me watching your story is just hearing the stories about people who have read it and it's changed their perspective, you know, whether it's parents or loved ones or just like random people on the internet who, who previously didn't really understand where the LGBT community was coming from and they read it. And they, and and it gives them, it gives them a sense of, uh, well, it's it's empathy is what it is is what you're giving them. You're telling them your story and you're explaining to them how you came, 
you know, to be this person that you are and these all these things that you experienced and, and why you decided to be or to, to, to you know, to write this story. And it's, 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 I think it's because you just tell the story so well. Like it's, it's, you don't come at it with a bias or, a, you know, an agenda. I don't feel like you, you're just telling the story of you growing up um, in Alabama, which <laughs> it's funny because I feel like it's really similar to kind of how I grew up because I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, I was a, a pastor's yeah. kid, and you told the story about uh, going to the charismatic church where, where your school was, and they had the banners, and it made me laugh because we had those yeah. banners. Uh, with <laughs> the sequins, mo- the yes. banners with sequins? Well, I think yeah. ours, I think we used, like, glitter glue instead of sequins, but my mom, oh, yeah. like, made them by hand, and we actually would, like, march them around the church, which probably was one of the less weird things you would see in our in our uh, church services because uh-huh. we were charismatics and Pentecostals, and they don't call you holy rollers for nothing. So <laughs> it's charismatics are not low key. I mean, they yeah. they are not afraid to be who they are, and I got I got mass respect for that. So. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just really cool to see a, a story told so well, and and I think that's why people are so open and receptive to it is because you didn't have an agenda. And you weren't trying to push something on them. You were just trying to explain to them why you are the person that you are. And I think that's why it was so effective. Yeah, I, I just think everyone is everyone is out there trying to change other people. Mm-hmm. And I've, and it's it's essentially, it's a form of sales. It's like we're all selling people on why we're right and everyone else is wrong. But the reality is none of us like to be sold. Yeah. You know, exactly. we love hearing stories, right? We'll go to a movie and sit down for three hours mm-hmm. and, and love every minute of it, but you don't want to be sold for yeah. three hours. Most of us don't want to be sold at all. And so that was my approach to say, you know, I don't want to sell anybody on anything. I don't care what you believe at the beginning of this story. And I don't care what you believe at the end. Uh, my goal is to just tell a story and hopefully it's entertaining at times and maybe it'll be sad at times. Maybe it'll cause you to think about how you've approached maybe a certain topic at times, but you know, that really was my motivation. And I think people respected that. And that was my, that was my way of trying to respect the reader because mm-hmm. a lot of people create content and they don't respect the reader or the listener. And I think you have to start from a position of my listener and my reader is really intelligent and they're smart and they deserve me to talk to them in a way that's uh, respectful and at times funny and at mm-hmm. times sad and, and always engaging. Cause I think engagement is sort of the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so after all that, about a month ago, there was this thing that was issued called the Nashville Statement by several very prominent evangelical pastors and leaders. Um, it was a statement of faith regarding human sexuality and gender roles, and there were several articles in it that um, said a lot about homosexuality and, and what these leaders thought about it and what they thought the biblical, and quote-unquote biblical, stance was on homosexuality. Um, and it basically was that you know, gay people cannot live a Christian life uh, if they aren't celibate, and that you know it's not a, it's not quote unquote Christian to to approve of their lifestyle, and you can't agree, agree to disagree. Um, what's it like after you know going through this process and telling your story to see something like that come out um, and just be so harsh in a lot of ways and and, and divisive um, on the topic of homosexuality and Christianity? Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, uh, I read that, you know, probably the same day you did, and it kind of threw me for a loop. And, and in some ways, I was very surprised, but then the more I had time to process it, it really wasn't that surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody whose names were on the Nashville statement or, or were names that you could have expected and kind of predicted would be on there. And, you know, most of the Nashville statement was really nothing nothing new. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was just a, they were articulating, a, you know, what I call a traditional Christian sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, to be honest, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with them articulating that. It's a free country. I understand where they're coming from. I understand their reasoning behind it, their scriptural backing. Behind it. I get all that. And so I don't have a problem with that. The parts of it I had problems with, you know, they, they spoke into so many different and random things. You know, there's an article where they, they address intersex uh, stuff. There's an art, uh, article or two where they talk about trans issues. Mm-hmm. And then to me, the really the most ridiculous article uh, was Article 10. And this is where they basically say, you know, if you claim to be a Christian, but you support same-sex marriage, or you think that it's okay that God can bless same-sex relationships, not only are you wrong, we really don't even think you're a Christian. You know, we don't think that your faith is valid. And to me, this was just the absolute height of arrogance, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's like, I understand, if you want to throw me as a gay person under the bus, theologically, I understand why you would do that. I think it's crap, but I understand why. Mm -hmm. But now you're going to throw people under the bus who aren't even gay, they just they're friends with gay people. They support gay people. They think that, you know, a gay couple and a family is not the worst thing ever. And yeah. so now, so it really was just a very uh, rhetoric driven thing. Um, and it was, so it's, it's a purity test. And I've been reading a lot from a guy named Richard Beck and he's, he writes about uh, the idea of disgust and um, contamination vectors is the phrase he uses. And he talks about how, you know, when it comes to tribalism, we often will create tribes and communities will create purity tests basically to say, hey, to be one of us, you've got to meet X, Y, Z criteria. And if you don't meet those things, you're not one of us. Mm-hmm. And, and there's really nothing wrong with that because, you know, groups and tribes have the right to create, you know, bylaws or methodologies or whatever. But this was a brand new form of a purity test, again, where they were saying, you know, we're going to extend this purity test, not just to the LGBT community. We're going to try to now extend it to their allies, to the people out there who are just as equally in a, the same amount of heresy. And we're gonna make sure everybody knows that now those people are on, they're on our list, you know, and they're, they're ones that, that we're pushing out. And so for me, it's just totally, it's totally crazy. It's, and really it's, the irony of it is that it's acutely unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, if you read the book of Galatians, and I don't wanna get too spiritual, but the book of Galatians is interesting because you have the apostle Paul getting pissed off at this church because you have a war between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jewish believers were saying, you Gentiles, you better go get circumcised, you know, um, or you're not really one of us. And Paul comes in and says, that's crap. You know, he says, uh, that's not the gospel that you were taught and that's not what I've taught. Essentially, you're adding to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I think this is a great example of the exact same thing to say, hey, yeah, to to be one of us, you have to claim Christ. But now you also have to believe certain things about human sexuality or else Mm -hmm. you're not in the club. So I don't know what it is about penises and circumcision. You know, the, it's like <laughs> these are the things the church is always divided over 2,000 years ago and still today, but yeah. it is what it is. And it's, like I said, it was really disheartening and discouraging, but it really shouldn't be all that surprising. Yeah, well, I think you made a really great point right after it was issued. You were talking about how the language that they always use to frame these statements and, and you know, these these opinions on homosexuality and Christianity is always centered around homosexual sex and that, and that gay people want to have sex. And, and you made the point that that's not what it's about for you. Like, that's what Blue Babies Pink is about, is that it was about companionship and love. And and and, and it's rare that you see that they, they phrase these things in terms of gay people wanting families and kids and just someone, you know, to spend the rest of their life with. Do you feel like that's purposeful is that necessary to their argument to to not frame it in that way to frame it in the terms of like just about sex and sexual immorality 
You know, I don't know if it's purposeful or not. I think some out there use it purposefully, but it's definitely a, it's a very, very slight, very, very subtle um, manipulation of language. What you said is true. There, When gay people are talked about or, or the issue of homosexuality, it's always in terms of just plain old, dirty, raw sex and how gross, you know, it's gross and it's offensive and it's against God and it's bizarre and it's deviant. You know, when and the, the point that I've made time and time again is to say, guys, that is not what this is about, you know. Um, yeah, for some people, maybe sex is the, a very big driving force and that's all they think about. But that's not most of us, right? I mean, mm -hmm. straight people, gay people, the deep craving of our lives is to be in companionship and to find love. You know, and I've often asked my, you know, my married straight friends, I say, you know, be honest, how many times a week do you have sex with your wife if it's one of my guy friends? You know, and they'll say, oh, I don't know, once or twice. Okay, how long does sex last? Oh, I don't know. Do you know, 10 minutes, let's say, each time? Okay, great. So let's let's assume the best. You're having sex three times a week, 10 minutes each session. So you're spending 30 minutes a week mm -hmm. having sex. Well, what are you doing the rest of that time in your marriage? <laughs> you know, like, it's yeah. it's not sex. You're living life. You know, there are, there's ups, there's downs, there's children, there's vacations, there's work, there's struggle, there's, you know, love, there's hugs, there's cuddle, you know, so... My point is that, you know, every good thing, not every good thing, most good things in life come from the institution of, you know, relationship, marriage, or family, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and the people that mean the most to us are oftentimes family. And so it, it's quite deceptive to act as if gays, all we care about is sex. And we're trying to rewrite the laws of marriage in the Bible to accommodate our perversion. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that's not true. Like, you know, we're li we literally want the same things everyone else wants. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to live really boring lives, but with love, you know, like yeah. that's all I want is to have a companion and to have someone to come home to at the end of the day and to have someone to build a, a life with and a family with and to to constantly be framing that as some kind of perverse, sick desire is, uh, you know, is just, it's absolutely maddening and it's, uh, it's deceptive, you know, it's maddening at best and it's highly deceptive at worst. And I, and it, it does, it does get at me sometimes. Sure. Do you feel like that's something that you kind of try and keep in the thread of everything you, you do as Blue, Blue Babies Pink is that, is that this is about love and companionship? I feel like, I mean, at the end of the day, like that's what's going to change people's minds. That's what changed people's minds with Blue Babies Pink is knowing that like you're just a human being who, you know, who just wanted this. And I feel like if you're changing hearts and minds, you know, quote unquote, like that's, I mean, you just humanize it. You, you humanize this idea of, of being gay, which shouldn't have to be humanized in the first place. But is that something you kind of try and, like, put in, in, in the tapestry of everything you do with Blue Babies Pink? Well, I, I think it, it happened naturally. I don't, mm -hmm. you don't think I would say I intentionally tried to yeah. show that again. My goal was to just reveal the story and my thoughts around it as authentically and honestly as possible. And so for me, that is my driving force. Mm -hmm. And so it is authentic for me to say that, you know, even in the, the my darkest hour of singleness and, and and chronic celibacy, you know, it wasn't I wasn't laying around just craving sex. That was that really was not it. It was yeah. this deep longing for companionship and to be known. And this is something that you know all humans can relate with. Yeah. And that's the 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 harmful nature of this single and celibate mandate given given down by the signers of the Nashville statement is that it just denies you the chance to find love and. And listen, I know that not everyone has love or has found love, but I do think everyone deserves a shot. And they, it's, it's, it is a human right, in my opinion, to, to have a family and to have and find companionship because it's absolutely crucial and it's essential to 
being human and to just act like that's not there or that's not valid or that that's perverse um, is not right. It's immoral. Yeah. So uh, there was something else that happened kind of in the wake of the Nashville statement and you were kind of expressing your opinions and there was an interaction you had with, with another Twitter user who obviously had been very hurt by the church um, and the church treatment of the LGBT community who kind of lashed out at you for trying to to build that bridge between between those two groups. Is that something that you feel like, do you get grief from both sides, I guess? Do you get grief, grief from like people on the church side who don't you know, want to affirm homosexuality and people who are out of the church who are like, we're done with this. Why do you want, you know, <laughs> why do you want us to have to endure that again? Is that something you experience a lot? Oh yeah, it really, it's, it's been really common. And, and I addressed this early on in Blue Baby's Pink and I, I tried to kind of de-escalate uh, folks on both side of the aisle mm -hmm. that might be angry or upset by this. And so what I said was, if you're gay, the story is not going to be gay enough for you. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Christian, the story will not be Christian enough for you. Because I knew I was going to piss off certain factions of both of those tribes, right? Um, I knew that was going to happen. And, and I, I'm a believer in the universality of assholes, <laughs> meaning every tribe has its share of assholes. But, I, but I, I also take a positive tone on that to say, I think they're in a big mi minority. I think the majority of Christians are good, nice, and kind people. Mm -hmm. I think the majority of gays, LGBT are good, nice, and kind people. Um, but you know, there is definitely the faction of those that there's the group of Christians that say you absolutely cannot be gay and Christian. That's a contradiction. GTFO. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and there are, there's a group of gays that say the church is, is nothing but evil and has brought nothing but harm and hardship on our community. And if you're in here trying to proclaim that the church can be a part of our community, you can GTFO, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, and so, yeah, the, the interaction you're referencing was an interesting one. It was a guy who he was, uh, I'm assuming not a person of faith. He was in the LGBT community. He was just tr trolling me hardcore on Twitter, basically saying, you know, you, you know, I think he said, you know, you're trying to build bridges. We don't want you to build bridges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no one asked you to build a bridge. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, I can, I understand why he would say that. And if you have been deeply wounded or hurt by the church, I totally understand why that would be your approach. And so, so, you know, that day I interacted with him and I was just, I just tried to be kind. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to convince you that you're not right because your story is real. If you really had that happen to you, then it happened to you. And I, you have a right to be upset about it, but, but it doesn't at all diminish what I'm trying to do, which I think is a noble thing, which is to try to create some sense of civility and conversation and bridges between these two tribes that are historically very at odds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that one just kind of was a, was an interesting interaction for me because I, I have left the church. I grew up, you know, as a pastor's kid for 12 years and was, was heavily involved until my early twenties. And I, and I left the church for a lot of different reasons, but I kind of still fall in the realm of like, there are a lot of people that I love that are Christians and they are decent human beings. Um, right. and I still understand, like, I think one of the biggest things that I miss after leaving the church is that sense of community. Um, and it's something I still, you know, every once in a while I'm like, oh, I wish I could just go to church today. And obviously I can just go to church <laughs> if I wanted to, but, um, so I, I get it. Like, I, I get why LGBT people would want, you know, to build bridges. I absolutely understand it. I also understand why this person would be like, well, F you and, and you trying to do all this stuff. I don't think he did it in the right way or, you know, if it's even, like, useful or helpful to say those things. But I understand why they would he would 
lash out and be angry about you know a group that has largely abused lgbt people but that's just kind of why it resonated with me because i still i feel like i still fall in the middle sometimes i'm always like (laughs) i always feel like I, i fall in the middle of like leaving the church but not like you know just completely eviscerating it sometimes i think it's more it's more the people or individual christians that do the most harm than it is like you know the group of christianity as a whole yeah yeah, I think it's a it's kind of a ma- macro and micro. So, you know, at the macro level, I think the church is doing a lot of good, um, and I think Christians are doing a lot of good. And at a micro level, all of us have stories that totally invalidate that. You know, um, so it's it varies varies by person, I guess. Yeah. So the current project that you just kind of announced that you're working on is is a set of resources for the parents, uh, Christian parents of LGBT kids. Um, is that something that you've been working on for a while? Um, was that kind of inspired by the national statement, or did you, did you already want to? Were you already planning on doing something similar to that before that all happened? Yeah, it happened well before the national statement. Probably six months ago, six or eight months ago, I just kind of began to, you know, kind of look at all the messages I was receiving, people that were reaching out, and there was just such this common trend of parents who had reached out to me, and and they were all, you know, dealing with uh, parents of LGBT kids dealing with this in their own way. And a lot of them, I just realized, had no support. They had not, you know, they're, they're too scared to talk to their pastor or church leadership about it because they'll be judged. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often can't go to their friends because their other parent friends don't have an LGBT child, so they don't, they can't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just the, the shock of it, you know, and of when your child comes out to you, it's a very, very, at times, shocking situation Mm -hmm. and you don't know how to cope with it and you've never been trained, you know, parents are not trained how to raise a gay child. And Mm so, um, so yeah, I, I, for whatever reason, a lot of these parents reached out to me and were very kind and were asking for help. And I was very clear to say, listen, I'm, I'm not a parent and I, I don't dispense with advice often. And I certainly don't dispense with parenting advice, but I do know some good resources. I do know some people out there who have expertise in that. And so, yeah, so what I'm working on now is, sort of cobbling together a lot of different resources um, to create, I won't call it a curriculum, but to create content for uh, parents of LGBT kids. Mm-hmm. And and that, and there is a lot of stuff out there already. There, there is content out there, but I think there's a um, sort of a an opportunity to put together content specifically for more conservative and moderate-leaning parents, Christian parents of gay kids, mm-hmm. because a lot of times those parents don't feel safe talking about their concerns, you know, uh, in a more kind of liberal environment. And so, so, but, and a lot of this is modeled after my relationship with my mom because she is um, not gay affirming, but she's very loving. Mm -hmm. And we've had very rocky times in our relationship, uh, lots of ups and lots of downs and lots of, you know, months where we wouldn't talk to each other. But in the last year, I think we've both gotten to a healthier place where we've actually learned to listen to each other, to Mm -hmm. kind of put down the gun, so to speak. It's like we were both pointing a gun saying, you know, you better change yeah, or, or I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> we both were saying that to each other. And it was kind of like, I felt like God just said, Brett, put down your gun and um, give her the space to believe what she wants to believe. And the cool thing was that she kind of said the same thing to me. And so, um, so yeah, a lot of it's sort of inspired by watching me and mom's relationship go from total crap to, to being in a pretty healthy place. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an, an, a really interesting approach because I feel like this is a group of people, you know, conservative parents of, 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 of gay kids who, who get villainized a lot and, and not wrongly so because sometimes a lot of them do react terribly to hearing that, <laughs> that their kids are gay, but it's, 
I mean, you also have to consider like the environment, like what you're saying, like, like, like these people can't go to their pastor. They can't go to their friends. Like they probably feel like they're out in an island, like on an island in the middle of the ocean (laughs) and they're just being pelted by a storm and they don't know what to do. And I think like there are a lot of them, like you've said that, that would reach out and want help and they don't know where to go. And, and I think that's a really amazing way to approach it because yeah, these people don't have the resources that they need and, and the resources, resources that they do have, you know, aren't always the most loving or, you know, healthy ways to approach these situations. So I really commend you for that. That's really awesome. Um, so my last question, this is kind of like uh, not really related to Boo Babies Pink, but my I love, I love doing this podcast because I love talking to people about what they're doing with their lives and, and how they're doing things that fulfill them. And you do a lot of things that, that fulfill you. I think you, you quit your amazing job to go out and something that, that fulfilled you even more, which I think is really cool. Um, but I love to ask people, what's one thing that you're doing right now to live the life that you want to live? It can be yoga. It can be cooking dinner every night. But, like, what's one thing that you're doing right now to live the life that you want to live? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is not driving. Not driving? <laughs> Just not, I know that sounds silly, but yeah, you, you said it earlier. I quit my job about a year ago. It was in a corporate role for 12 years mm-hmm. and had a great job. Loved it. Really did. But I was commuting from Atlanta's Cabbage Town neighborhood to Alpharetta, which is in the suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, about two hours per day. Yeah. And it's crazy when you study like the effects of long commutes on people. It is like, it's like more unhealthy than like smoking and binge drinking. It's crazy, you know, like, cause you're sitting still, you're getting anxiety, you're, you know, impatient and you get angry. And so, so yeah, like the last year not having to commute and working from home has been like the most freeing and healthy and like glorious thing I could ever imagine. And so those those, uh, Beltline videos are about is you not driving, just (laughs) getting on your bike. Yeah, that's basically it. (laughs) Yeah. And the, and the neighborhood I live in now is very walkable. And so, you know, I'll go two or three days sometimes and not get in my car because I can, you know, get on my bike, go to the store, go eat dinner, whatever. So it's just a healthier way to live. And, And I know not everybody can pull that off, but I feel super blessed to be able to do that. And, um, yeah, and it sounds small and simple, but, you know, just being more active and moving more in the day, sit, you know, sitting less and moving more, uh, that's my answer to your question. <laughs> that's just, that's a small thing, but it's really yeah, been, that's... it's put me in a healthier, a much healthier state of mind. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brett. I really appreciate it. Um, this has been a really fun conversation. So. Thanks, awesome. Jessica. I have a, I have a raging lady boner, oh, so, you know. I, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Editing and production is done by yours truly, and I cannot end this podcast uh, without giving a huge shout out to my best friend, Will Hallfield, who uh, he wrote the Raging Lady Boner theme song that you're used to hearing, and he also wrote the song that you heard throughout this podcast called The Better. Uh, To find out where you can find his music and more information, just visit RagingLadyBoner.com.